Welcome to the Dr. Funk Podcast. On this episode, we hear part three of our interview with former Paisley Park sound engineer, Scott Baldwin, where he discusses Prince's final performances with the new power generation and at Paisley Park. And now, all good things they say never last, Dr. Funkenberry. Here we go with part three of our interview with Scotty P, Scott Baldwin. So, when we last left off for part two, we were talking about how <clears throat> frustrating it is for me, probably more so for you, and that's where I get to your point of view, that he really technically only ha- only has one live official recording. All these bootlegs, their soundboard recordings out, however, there's only one official live recording i know that the musicology was supposed to be released on dvd i saw the booklets all that stuff was there other projects um that you saw that he wanted to release or you felt should be released with all all the the live shows that you've done and covered well first of all i i don't mind that there's only one official live recording (laughs) for obvious reasons right right but um but it it the only other thing that I think of note, and I know you want to cover this eventually, was the um, I saw artwork somewhere online for the January 21st show, which I multi-tracked for him and was mixed by a studio engineer that night. Uh-huh. Um, that may, I would be quite certain that that would see the light of day, uh, the the first performance at um, um, Paisley Paisley Park, yeah, yeah. both shows. That would be so but, cool. But uh, yeah, uh, other than that, I um, there were so many things and so many things that were tracked live. Uh, maybe not multi-tracked. Um, I think the musicology show of which you speak that was multi-tracked as a gift to Prince from AEG, um, the his promoter Concerts West did that on their dime. They multi-tracked it. The show, I remember because it was a real hassle because Prince never multi-tracked any live show. He just uh, recorded on stereo. And um, we had to bring in another split snake and we had to do all the things with a mobile truck out in the parking lot and a lot of radios and a lot of trouble. But um, the show was still great. And um, although I seem to think he forgot lyrics. Yes, he did. He forgot lyrics a couple of times during that show. So I thought, I remember mixing it. I went, up. Oh, Here's a fix. Now we got to fix that. Now we got to fix that. And, um, but, uh, I think ultimately they, they ended up mixing that at Paisley Park in, in 5.1. All I did is consult on the mix for that. Mm. Um, but, uh, that wasn't a, that wasn't his best show anyway on musicology. Not even close. I think that was Detroit, wasn't it? I mean, uh, Auburn Hills. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to do that one. That and the booklet right. looked really nice. That's all I'll say about it. And it's just like, you know, because you're saying it's not the best show. I heard that about the Vegas Aladdin show. We were like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. And Takumi goes, man, Japan makes that show look terrible. We should record the shows in Japan. That's right. Japan, we had we had a lot of Takumi. We had a lot of fun on that on that whole run and um, stuff he did in Japan and just kind of how magical it was. It it was a lot um, about that run that was um really in concert as i talked about earlier everything seemed to be in concert it was a really musical tour 
I think he stretched musically as well, and he got to show his muscles a little bit musically. That's cool. Now, <clears throat> we're talking about it because we heard, at least when I was there, but let's do this one first. Actually, um, St. Bart's, New Year's Eve, because it was the last show, kind of like with the MPG, Third Eye Girl, Donna Grantis, Ida, you know, all them and kind of in the mix. I don't think Hanno was there, though. I think she was. No, she was not. Yeah. Just getting preggers. So. This is 2015? Yeah, 2015 and 2016. Now, that what can show, you tell us about that show? Um, I was just finishing up a tour with the Fray, and um, I got a call November 9th, which was the day. So on the 8th, I get this call from Kirk and says, at the last sound check for the Fray in Las Vegas, and he said, he wants to talk to you. He wants you to come in. And I said, perfect. Right. It's great when those things work out yeah. just like that. No gap. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I'll be home tomorrow. I'll come in. <clears throat> so I came in and I, at that point I didn't know, none of us knew that he wanted to do a, um, a new year's Eve show, but he, um, uh, I drove in, at, I came in at two that day. As soon as I landed, I came, went home, changed into appropriate stuff and went out to Paisley park. And I drove up, uh, walked in the NPG, uh, the garage door was up. That was one of the rare times it was, it was just up and they were rehearsing or they were mm-hmm. ready to rehearse and, and, uh, came in there and it was, it was great. It was great to be back. It had been a while. And, um, I just kind of went to the area where the soundboard would have been, right? That's where I always go. And, um, even at concerts or at shit at church i'm back in the back where the soundboard would be any anywhere i am i'm always in the back and so i kind of went there and and uh kirk said hey man he'll he'll he's coming to talk to you and he rode in on a bike hmm. uh from the hallway cool. and and he pulled up and uh, uh we gave a hug and i said well hey man that is not the way i imagined you coming in this room and he laughed he said no i'm I love this bike. I ride it all the time. And I said, cool. So he, apparently he would just go outside and ride around a bit and then come back in the, and ride down the hallways and whatever. Um, and, uh, we talked about some different things, different projects he wanted to do. And, and one of them ended up being New Year's Eve in St. Bart's for Roman Abramovich. And, and this, for some reason, this show didn't surface a lot. I mean, not a lot has surfaced about it. It was a private show it was uh excuse me it was purchased from roman abramovich and um i want prince to play my new year's eve party it was uh paul mccartney it was i mean it was a ton of celebrities just it was all celebrities it was about 150 people Mm -hmm. and it was on a beach in a club and um kirk told me well you gotta you gotta do it all and i said well what do you mean by that? He said, everything. Lights. You gotta you gotta run monitors, you gotta do front of house. Uh backline. <laughs> you have to book everything. And Take I tickets said, at uh, the door. All right. <laughs> so who ended up going was it was Kirk. I, there were Liv War there were a couple of it was two backgrounds. It was Okasi oh, was out playing keys. Ida played bass. Mono was there, didn't play a, a thing, didn't t- didn't come on stage. Adrian played uh, sax. Kirk, mm-hmm. uh, Donna, uh, Trevor, Donna's uh, talented uh, husband, uh, 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 who was Prince's um, 
confidant and 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 um uh president of uh the mpg records and worked closely with him uh, all the way through to the end and and um and myself so it was just the band prince uh trevor and me trevor ran the the uh, the teleprompter and i did you know i set up all the band i had a stage built in this club we had to wait till dinner was finished oh, built wow. the stage through the night i kind of supervised that got carpeting on it and um and it was small and it was actually cool because it was shaped like a piano kirk was in the back and you know we just you just do it there's no there's no real uh, you just kind of have to take it all and i had to do everything so they said well prince will be staying up here in in these villas and i said well i need to see the villas um because it was just you know kirk was with prince so i had to go and and um and, and pick a villa and they said, we really want him to stay in this villa because this the floor of this villa is the side of the the train from the the this famous train that 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 I don't know it was just it was just crazy they, and and on the floor was the you could see writing and it was crazy and I said the Orient Express that's what it was the, oh. this this is the side of the Orient Express and we the want him to Orient and I said Express. no he can't stay there because that's the closest one to the road Kirk has to stay here he'll take that one down the stairs you know and then I had to go okay what else and then I had to run down the hill and make sure gear was being loaded in and set up. So I really had to do it all for that gig. Truly do it all. Tour manager, production manager had to, had to arrange transport for the helicopters to come to bring me over there and then Prince and Kurt back. And it was, there was a lot of, lot to do. And, 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 uh, and all of us were really worn out. That was, that was uh, a tough, that was a tough four day, four or five day thing. That was really rough. And, but super satisfying. And who knew it would be his last um, uh, show with some of those people, right? Some of those folks. Right. So, um, and I remember thinking, well, here I go. I got to think about sound now. So, am I going to run? I'm going to run monitors from the desk. There's only one desk out front. And I flew in the helicopter. I had the helicopter take me back to St. Uh, Martin. And I, I met with a band in the lobby and I said, okay, hey, hey, everybody. Prince likes to hear the front of house mix. So all of you consequently are going to have the front of house mix in your, in your stage monitors, uh-huh. right? At front of house levels. Now here's the only caveat. What you want in your front of house mix, you can have. If you just want kick, snare, hat, Prince vocal and keys, you can have that, but they're all going to be at front of house levels. They're going to go up and down, right? And everyone said, Oh, okay. I get it. Anybody have any questions? No. Okay. Cassie, what do you want in your mix? I want. Prince's vocal, my vocal, my keys, and that, right? Okay. Donna, what do you want? I want this. Kirk, what do you want? I want drum machine. I want this. So I just went through and made a little list. And when I got there the next day, I turned on everything in everyone's mix. And maybe this is all too much information, but it was, oh. it worked perfectly. This is cool. Why? Huh. Why? Because it's what he wanted any, and in Prince's mix, I had everything on. Everything except the overheads and maybe the hi hat. I had everything else turned on. So he, through his wedges, I had four big wedges for him. He, he was hearing what I was doing out front. And that's what he had always said he wanted. I, I want the front of house, I want the stage to sound like front of house. I want there to be no detection of anything. I want to feel inspired up there. So I gave it to him and I was, I was happy to be able to come back, uh, after all these years, you know, and do a show and really not just sit in on a show, but really craft it and create it and make it go down and make it sound great. And gave hand over to him what I uh, 
what I consider to be a releasable front house mix and, and, um, and do that. It was important. And then to do the piano shows and be the, uh, the person behind the desk for the, the first, his first ever solo show was really a, an honor as well, but it was all part of what we all did all the time. So it was right back into the, uh, into the fire with when I joined back up in November. Right. <clears throat> Jumped right into it, huh? Mm-hmm. Now, January 20th, <laughs> Paisley Park. Uh, January 21st is when the shows happened. January 20th is when you kind of like went through a run through with him, a show or certain things that he wanted. Like how important were these shows to him, especially because it now was kind of the kickoff for the piano and the microphone tour that was supposed to be uh, the year before in Paris, before everything was going down there. Like, was there more of an emphasis on this show, especially because it was only going to be him, the piano and the microphone and, making sure everything is right, you know? Um, it, it was, it's sort of, I, it, it wasn't detectable to me when he decided to do these shows. It just sort of, we just got off St. Bart's and the high of doing that show and it was a new mm-hmm. year. So it's exciting, right? Go home and rest for a couple of days. Just put in a lot of a week. It's worth a really hard work and a lot of travel, three flights to get down there, four flights to get home. And, um, then suddenly I got told we I want to do these piano shows. Mm-hmm. And they booked the 21st, sold tickets. They did uh, Rick Barron and his wife Lee and, and um, coordinated the event. Kirk did a great – everybody did a great job in making it all happen. Um, and uh, uh, Andrew, uh, who works at Paisley Park, he – everybody really came together and made it – it was really special. And you guys know how special that show was. And, um, and it, we tried different things out on piano. We ended up using his purple shell piano with his, his personal, uh, motif eight inside it, his Uh XF eight inside it with all his samples that we had had in St. Bart's. That was a really, uh, special, that was his motif, how he had it loaded up, how he wanted it with all the samples. And, um, Uh and, but he just played the, the grand with the, or the grand and the strings. And it was beautiful. I was, and we, I knew at some point he, we were going to have to have a discussion about what he was going to do. We had to have a game plan, right? Even when you're kids and you're playing football in the street, right? You have those little yep. kind of huddles because you want to be like an adult. So you go, okay, you do a button hook and you go to the sideline and you go long, right? And every, every kid experiences that in one form or another. And so I, I believe it was just a few of us, um, at Paisley Park and, uh, we were going over the sound. Prince said, we, I want to work on the sound. So we worked on it for a little bit. And then he said, we should probably go over the set list for tomorrow. And I said, okay, um, do you have it? And he showed me the handwritten set list. And I was always, always very respectful about his handwriting, um, uh, which was beautiful, by the way. But um, I knew not enough not to hang on or try and walk off with any of that handwriting. So I quickly made a document of the set list that he had sitting there. And then I handed it back to him. And then I quick printed it out had a printer behind me and running wirelessly. I had everything ready and I quick printed it out and printed out a note section. And he said, um, do you have time to, to work on the show? And I said, yeah. And he said, um, now granted, remember I'm set up behind him behind a curtain. So uh-huh. I'm backstage 
you know, behind a curtain. I'm not out front. You don't need to be out front. I, I've had this discussion with a lot of engineers. You don't have to be in the perfect position out front because most people aren't in that position. 99.9% of the people aren't. So you should be able to be, you, you have to be amenable to being in a lot of different places and making it sound good for everywhere. And I knew that he was going to be mixing the show, really, not me. I was just going to be mixing the effects. Right. So we get the quad sound. He always loved quad sound. We got that set up. We got it where he wanted. Can you turn it up a little more here, a little more there, and then turn up here and turn up more on the wedges? And I had to time delay everything so it was just right for him so it sounded good where he was. And then we got kind of got set. And he said, well, let's talk about this set list. Do you want to come up and bring a table or something? And I was always, again, very reverential to his the positioning of myself to him. And since he was sitting down at a piano, I didn't want to walk up on this riser and slap my iPad on there and my notebook yeah. and just on his piano, right? That just didn't uh, – it, it wasn't a fear thing. It was just a respect, respect you know, and yeah. it's, I give right. that to every any artist. So I said, no, man, I'm cool. I'll just put it right here. And I walked over. The riser was four feet high. So I opened my three-ring binder, and we started to talk about the set. So he's playing – and then he would look down and to his right, and I was there. I didn't take that psychological advantage, right, of being above him. I did it other times. Musicology, I definitely didn't need a riser. I ordered a, uh, what was it? It was a 16Y by 12 deep by one foot high riser in all the arenas. I, I traveled with the riser for musicology. Didn't need a riser. I did it on purpose so that he would stay out of my area. Um, and it worked. Manny, his wife, would come up and sit with me during the shows, but he wouldn't come up there. So sometimes it worked and this time I didn't want to do it. So we start talking about the set and he said, well, I'm going to play Batman as the intro. Okay. I write down Batman. And then he said, do you have any effects for me? And I knew what that meant. What it meant was cool, special, different effects. And I have a, a just a, an array, a plethora of, of effect of, of special effects that I did and that I've come up with over the year for over the years for him. And I've got a good story in musicology about the effect that it opened that show, which I know you guys know that effect um, and how I came up with that. But um, I said, okay, well let's use this one from 2004. And he said, I said, can you check the mic? And he said, check one, two. And I said, okay, try it again. And he went, check one, two, one, two, one, two. One, two. And I had this descending echo, cool. right? that and he said and he, he would turn with that side eye but he would nod and drop that upper lip and it was sort of like that's good well let's write that in so he said um, let me play with that so then he went Paisley, 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 and it did that thing and so he just wanted to play around a little bit and then he started playing the batman he said okay when i finish the batman theme then take that effect off and we were sort of coming up with this game plan he was telling me what he wanted to do as the quarterback right Very cool. uh -huh. so so I wrote, okay, wrote that down and I'm taking all these a, a flurry of notes and we get, and I know you'll find this interesting. I did, especially in light of what's going on right now. We get to a point and he turns and he said, okay, r right here, I'm going to say something about David Bowie. Oh, wow. Who had just died. Maybe when did he die? I don't know what day he died. He died somewhere right around then. Within a week, yeah. right? Okay. As did Glenn Frey. Yeah. Glenn Frey. Uh -huh. yeah. So he said, right here I'm going to say something about David Bowie. Um, I would play one of his songs, but I don't know any. Um, I'll let all those other musicians do their tributes. 
and he rolled his eyes. Oh, wow. So in retrospect, I didn't think about that until the things began to be announced that I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what he thought of tributes. Right. You know, here's a guy who, as you well know, the moment something went on YouTube, 24 hours later, it was gone. No unauthorized use of my material, period. So mm-hmm. all that didn't change to me on an elevator, right? Yeah. So no unauthorized use of my material. And that's just the way I feel about it. And I'm, I might be in a small minority of people, but I just, that when he said that to me, I, and I had to recall it afterward, but I went, oh yeah, that's right. He rolled his eyes at tributes. Hmm. I'll let all those musicians do their tributes. And, and then he, and then we just kept moving on and I, and then I'm going to do this and this. And I, and I would say to him, okay, do you want something cool there? And, and he said, um, he started to play sometimes it snows in April, which is of course a very evocative. It's, it evokes a lot of emotion. That song does. It's an, um, incredibly powerful song. Mm-hmm. So he started playing it. He started noodling around in it and I knew what key he was in. So I knew he was going to go into it and he started and he sang the line and then when he got to the after civil war it's normally three snare hits and live i used to add a big deep long reverb right it's supposed to kind of be a civil war snare and it was going to go da 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 like that but of course he it was just him at a piano so he went tracy died soon after long fought civil war and then he went and he snapped and then he said just after and i said hold, hold on man and we did have that relationship where i could interrupt him um, not many people could, and I'm not saying I'm special. It's just a fact. And I said, hold on, man. Uh, can you hit the uh, snap thing again? And he started over. He went, Tracita. And when he got, he snapped the three snaps, and I put this echo that bounced all around the room with a lot of reverb on it. Oh, cool. <clears throat> and then yeah. he looked He looked and did that a- approval nod, and then, and then he just kept going. So that was my way of sort of jumping in and saying, hey, how about this here? I know we did that live 12 years ago, so why don't I just do this here? And I, there would have been no other time, you understand, to do that afterward. So I had to kind of interject and interrupt and just to mark that one down. And then we just worked all the way through this. It was great. We laughed. We had a there were there were a bunch of. Um, it was probably the best day I've had with them in a in in a many many years. It was really it, we laughed and it was fun and. He, he said, I'm going to do this here. He didn't say anything about talking about um, Lisa. That was a surprise. That was really nice of what he said during that first show about Lisa right. Coleman. And, what did he and, say? Um, oh, he just <clears throat> told the story about Raspberry Beret and that she wrote that hook and that she was playing it. And he heard it and he said, what is that? And he, he uh, talked very, very uh, – said a lot of really nice stuff about Lisa. Um, and – when you look at a um, transcript of the show, somebody sent me a transcript of the show because he mentioned me in the show. He talked about, uh, if, does it sound good? That's it's because of Scotty, and what, he yeah. gave me props on the oh, uh, in, cool. during the show. And we just happen to have a clip of that right now, so let's listen to it. Does it sound good? The reason is Scotty. His name is Scotty. Show him love. And so somebody sent me a transcript of it, but what I thought was nice is that 
when you read the when I read the transcript of what songs were played and when they were played, you could see this overarching, um, almost a timeline. So he always had this thing in mind that people, for which I don't think he was given enough credit, he had this pushed away view of things in a complete way that he knew that this was all going to be taken a certain way. And, um, and both shows were really magical. And he, uh, he, they were recorded. I recorded them, multi-tracked them with uh, a, a live, uh, uh, a studio engineer named John Gass, amazing engineer. He mixed a ton of big hits. He, he's a great, great engineer. And he, um, he, um, Right after the first show, we John and I walked into Studio A and dumped the drive into to um, into Studio A. So and then we did the same after the second show. So I know they exist and they we recorded them with six uh, with five uh, with four shotgun mics and and stereo crowd mics. So there are a lot of crowd mics and the recording came out great. And it's um, it, it's uh, that's a really special night. That was lightning in a bottle, and I think that's what um, he was going for. And I right. think it's probably the effect he achieved the effect he was trying to have. It was a very fun, emotional night. I didn't know that was going to be <clears throat> the last shows of Paisley. Although he did do like a DJ set performing that Saturday, but these Correct. were like really, you know, the piano shows. Both of them were just, you know, him being so intimate, talking about his father and so many other things, especially during the first set. The second set was more just rarities, including the dance, even a little bit of black sweat. Um, <clears throat> and what a cool, unique perspective that that Scotty had, too, just that one-on-one, because he, he was never just by himself on a stage. So that was really cool just to have that. Mm. Another interesting thing, because people would give him so much stuff over it, is that him mentioning Bowie. Because it always seems that when there's something going on, the fans want Prince to kind of, you know, take notice of it. Like when Michael passed, a lot of fans were upset for a while that he really didn't say anything about it. Um, What was he supposed to say? With Bowie, it's just a thing like he met him once um, after Bowie was performing there, invited him back to Paisley in 88. Um, it's an interesting story because uh, that was the first time Donnie Simpson kind of met him and there was someone kind of blocking uh, Donnie's view of what was going on and <laughs> Donnie patted this person with long hair and like, excuse me, miss, you're kind of in my way. And it was like, Prince turns around and goes, oh, hey, Donnie. Oh, no. <laughs> and that was like the first time like Bowie was at that thing. They all kind of like met each other. But that's the only time that he met Bowie was that one time in 88 at Paisley when he invited him over there. So you know, his kind of cool. his response to social issues was usually a musical response. Yeah. Um, and that's how he spoke best was through his music. Um, anyone around him in a close proximity to him the way I was and so many of us over the years um, knew that not every one of his ideas was a great idea. As a matter of fact, the, the, if you charted out the success rate, it would be probably very low, but his successes were the ones that did hit were fabulous, right? They were 
they, they were, they, everything kind of aligned for him and not every time, but, um, and, and he's somebody that his response, he figured his best response was to play his strength. He always played his strengths, not his weaknesses. Right. Now, after all, you're talking about a guy who, um, who was primarily known as a mover and a dancer and with all these James Brown type moves, right? You watch side of, just watch sign of the times, oh, yeah. just watch mm-hmm. the movie. And then you say, well, how could he have the success he had after that when he couldn't seemingly couldn't move like he could anymore? Well, people don't talk about his lack or his lack of ability to move. They talk about other facets of the show because all he needed to do is put it in a higher gear. Right. He just put it in a higher gear and said, I'm going to concentrate over here. I'm going to play guitar a lot or I'm going to do this. And he it was seemingly at will that he could, from my perspective anyway, that he could just turn it up a notch however want he, he just had as many gears as he wanted to have right. and um sometimes only used uh a certain amount of them but he he certainly could respond in a musical way to the to what people were feeling because he was a social critic i think that's true of any great artist is that their response to the issues in society are ones that are artistic they have an artistic response we don't do a lot of that now. We right. tweet and we, right? We, yeah, they're disposable. not artistic responses. Right. They are. So it takes a lot more forth. It takes a lot more planning to respond artistically to something. Right. Um, and he was the, he was a social critic. He was, he told us about our desires. He let us know in the eighties about our desires. He let us know about our, um, weaknesses and he, uh, um, and not to deify him, he had his, he certainly, he was a man with his faults. And I, I experienced a lot of those in a lot of different times. But if you took the bad times that I had personally with him in a one-on-one and you, and I threw a percentage on them and I was able to mark out the amount of time I spent with him, it would be in the single digits huh. for sure of bad time. You know, it mm-hmm. was, it was, there were so many, and the bad times were bad. There were times, there were times on that, the aforementioned, uh, shows in Japan that, Takumi of, of which Takumi mentioned, um, that were, I had one of the worst days ever with him in Japan. He was relentless. He hmm. went after me and I was just that day. I was my day, but I'd never stopped trying to learn from those experiences. Right. And uh, it's made me better. It's made working with other artists really easy. And I'm able to, um, really, uh, personally, I'm, for a second, if I may, it, it's, it's allowed me to help artists be artistic in what I do because I have right. facilitated this depth and width of my own ability that everything else is pretty easy. Doesn't mean I'm on my heels with it, right? There's a, there's a band, do you guys aware of a band named Scissor Sisters? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now, Scissor Sisters was probably, out of all the artists with whom I've worked, they were probably had the best show and they were the most fun. And I mean it. It was an experience with Scissor Sisters was an absolute joy, the the show. And um, and Baby Daddy, who writes a lot of their material and, and lyrics along with uh, Jake Shears, um, Baby Daddy would, would say to me during a rehearsal, he would stop and he would just say, Scotty, WWPD. <laughs> and I would say... Uh, let me think for a second. He'd go back to back to back to three snare pickup. And then he'd go, all right, let's try that. 
Right. Right? Because I knew what, what, or I thought I knew, or I pretended I knew, but I felt I knew what Prince would do. That's an opportunity to do this, back to that, right? And you, you create these space, moments of space and quiet and energy and depth. And when you get all that together in concert, it's just super powerful. And that's why live, he was, I think in our lifetime, it's not a stretch to say that he was the greatest live performer uh-huh. of all time, all that's, things considered. Yeah. <clears throat> What's interesting about, you know, you're saying you were constantly learning. He was constantly learning as well, because although January 20th, he brought up about Bowie and he's just going to mention him. He doesn't know any of his songs. As the tour progressed, he did add uh, Bowie's song Heroes into the set list, correct? That's right. <clears throat> That's kind of cool. And so he... Um, and he was he was constantly taking in new artists. He always had his ear to the ground and was checking out what the new sound was and a new thing that was um, resonating with people. I think he was a very uh, he was a very resonant being. He was he he understood frequency and vibration, and he um, mm-hmm. that may be being a bit dramatic, but you know why where I'm trying to go with that. He he was in touch. He was very in touch with. Um, what was going on with people. And, um, and I think that came out in his music, uh, um, all throughout his career. And I remember having one, um, discussion with him where, uh, Kirk called and said, he wants to talk to you. And I drove out and this is three years ago, maybe four years ago. And, uh, we didn't talk about sound at all. I came in, I went up to his office. Um, it was just us there. We sat in his office for three or four hours. Uh-huh. And, we talked about, and you know, people listening to this, they go, oh my God, right? <laughs> I would, oh my God, three or four, three hours of sitting with print. But right. it wasn't, it, it was, it was natural and it wasn't, um, uh, it was a guy who wanted to talk about stuff and he asked questions and he was inquisitive and he was asked what I was listening to. And then he showed me Leanne Le Havis. He showed me that's when he was into her. He was showing me that stuff and, and her stuff. And then he, so he introduced me to Leon the Havis. He, um, showed me another artist. I can't remember who it is. I'm sure it'd be a great compliment to them. And he said, um, he said, now look at this, watch this video. And we watched this video and she got up and she started walking toward the, the, um, uh, camera. She was, it was, she was in looking at the camera as she's singing, walking. And I said, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if all the books and everything on those shelves start flying off the shelves as she's walking toward them? And he said, that's what I'm talking about. Like, so he was <laughs> like, it was, it, it, he was always writing. It was like, he was always writing. Huh. And then <clears throat> I told him about a, I don't know if I should say this or, or not, but I told him, I said that, 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 that's that idea, um, that, that I had about of that video for you. Now he had a Prince had a great ploy. He had a great I'm gonna out him on this great ploy. What he would say if he wanted to get talk about something, he would say, It's like you were saying about this. <laughs> and then he would mention and I would go, I would say, What? Like I I wasn't just talking about it's like you were just saying about carving pumpkins, you know, you gotta carve pumpkin. And I would go, Wait, what when did I mention ever carving pumpkin? Like he would just bring it up. Uh-huh. But he would say, It's just like you were saying about this. And, um, uh, but I sort of did it to him. I said, Oh, it's like that video idea I had for you. And I told him about this idea where it would be three different bands that he had. He would start in the atrium with the jet, with Renato, Rhonda, John Blackwell. 
right? He would start a song and then he would walk toward the camera. And I'm riffing. This is jazz. This is, uh, I'm making this up as I'm going. Uh-huh. And I said, then you would walk down the corridor to, um, you'd start in the atrium and then you'd walk down to the MPG room, down the corridor to the MPG room. And it would be a different formation of your band. It would be Third Eye Girl. So Third Eye Girl would play that same song. It would just change, the arrangement would change to that band, uh-huh. right? And the whole time you're looking, it's, you're looking at the camera. It's a steady cam shot. And then I said, then we go into the big room and it's the whole band and you're, and it goes to the arrangement changes to that. And then it ends where you do a spin and the, you, the microphone just right out of your shoulder. And he listened to that whole thing. He was really um, patient. And he listened to the whole 35-second diatribe that it went on, right? Mm-hmm. And then he said, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of ideas. And then I said, yeah, but we need a song. And he said, um, I, I, don't mind wor- I don't mind working backwards like that. I can write a song for that. Huh. Oh, and we know he could, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, can, can you imagine? He, uh-huh. he, he could, he, he would, that idea, and I'm not trying to, you understand i'm just anecdotally i'm just saying that that idea that genesis that i threw to him he there's no he could deliver that he could say well it would start with a fretless bass and ronda right go to renato go to john and then it would walk down that court and he could just write that how long would that have taken 40 minutes right he's that those uh artists don't really exist anymore they just uh they don't exist and it was part of the process that Fans never really, um, of which they never get to to hear. They don't get to hear that kind of stuff. He was right. just ultimately creative, all ultimately. I mean, all the time, all right. creative, all the time. Now, as you were saying before, it's like you were talking about with the Beatles, <laughs> with the Beatles. Who who uh, who did the countdown for the St. Bart's New Year's Eve show? That would have been. Wow, you did it to me. That was good. <laughs> yeah, um. So we're waiting to go on, and I I I, I didn't get ner- I never get nervous anymore. That's the one thing I have to say about live sound is, in every live sound engineer's career, at, at every technical position, there's a really big case of nerves that hits, um, before a show. Is everything going to go right? Is all this working right? Mm-hmm. But now we live in the age that there's so much experience that I've had over thirty years that um. Now I know what's going to work. It's the checks and balances. And plus I are good. And I know that, um, I know what to expect. So I sort of miss that nervousness. I don't get nervous anymore. So I was at St. Bart's. I wasn't nervous. I knew everything was on me. I had to turn everything on and it was, there was nobody else to blame except me, right? Right. Nobody else. And, um, and I was waiting there and they said, oh, somebody ran up and said, oh, he wants to start, um, uh, uh, Abramovich wants him to start after midnight. And I said, oh, okay. I thought we were going, you know, okay. All right. We're going after, after midnight. So I was kind of waiting there. I looked down and it's a, it's about a minute and a half to, to midnight. And I'm just sitting there. Haven't had a thing to drink, not even water in hours. Cause I was busy doing everything, tuning drum, doing everything to get it ready. And next to me, this guy said, um, who's doing the countdown. And I turned and hanging over the sound, board to the left was paul mccartney hmm. and i said oh uh you are <laughs> and so i grabbed my mic and i and i said okay just you have to look at my watch and i have a i have a a, a watch that turns on when you you know 
lift up the screen, right? So I lifted it up and it was going and then it turned off. So I had to like th- shake my wrist down and lift it up again. Well, he's he's had a few, we'll say. <laughs> and then he, he hands me a uh, shot and I'm looking down and it's it's like three, two, one. And I knew it was New Year's, but he still hasn't started the countdown. So I said, <laughs> um, okay, and go. <laughs> and, he, and Paul McCartney says, he was 10, 9, Eight and he says every second he announces about every four seconds. So it took like forty seconds to count. It was crazy. And then he finally, you can see um, fireworks going off a minute before, and people are all yelling "Hey" on the beach. And he's at number he's seven, six, five, full. And then he got to one, and then and Prince comes down the stairs and just kills it. Oh, right? that's yeah. hilarious. And awesome. and uh, you had to be in that little crowd of people that was there and and uh but it was magic you know as tough as that trip was on me um it was it's one of those things that you just that i never never forget and it's um especially now in retrospect of his passing it's uh makes it equally special that i was able to learn as a drum tech in the early 90s right and then see all these different iterations of different bands and then come back and mix 2000 to roughly 2005 and then do all these little projects, special projects in eight and house parties in LA and then come back and do this gig and that gig and then end up uh, trying to come up with an app for him in, in 2012 uh, with a colleague of mine, Jason Franz, and to mm. come up with an app that I recommended to Prince and he came up and worked with Prince for weeks and shot the extra lovable video yep. i know you've had contact with jason and jason's a it, cool guy. bringing bringing people into the fold that are really skilled at a high level and able to excel in those conditions are those people are rare they don't grow on trees so to bring the right people in and i was able to do it with dave uh, hampton and and um and jason as well and be able to give but for me be to be able to come back and do one great last gig it's like a movie right we need you back man for one one last gig. Yeah. You're the best yeah. chimney sweep in the world. <laughs> no, mate. Why don't you chimney sweeping anymore? One last. They have your niece, man. Right. All right. I'll do it. And so I did the one live gig and the and the piano and a microphone uh, show and tour. And it was it was good to be able to utilize all that stuff that I learned over the years from him back with him again. Right. It's amazing. It's amazing. I want to thank you so much for your time with this and finding us uh, do a few parts with you. And I want to have you and Dave on. I'm sure there's going to be some stuff, even as long as we talk, you're like, oh, I wish I would have said this. So we're definitely going to have to cover that again. And oh, the next one, we're going to take questions Absolutely. from people. I, but. I do want to say that I, um, with all that's going on in the state things are in right now, mm. um, it, I, I, I did say this to you on the phone and I meant it when I first contacted you that, um, that ultimately Prince had, the fans were really, really super important to him mm-hmm. and how his music was, he knew they were the best, um, recipient of his music. And you have sort of, whether or not you stepped into the role or wanted to or, or didn't, you've been put in a role of being sort of, um, this legacy, I think, will be told less so through the people that want to tell it because they need to and because they want there's something in it for them. I think that it's going to be ultimately the the story will be told through fans 
and I look at you. That's why I contacted you in in the first place was because I think your point of view is um, different. It comes from a different uh, energy in a different place, and I want to. Uh, I appre- I just want you to know that I appreciate all that you do, and um, and what you are doing for the legacy. Because whether you know it or not, you're adding a tremendous amount to the legacy. A lot more than just anecdotes from an older sound guy like me, but it's it's there's a there's a message in all those stories, and it's it's greater than the stories themselves. As he wanted everything to be greater than the sum of its parts in concert, mm-hmm. of which I was a part. He, um, I think you're going to bring a unifying message to his legacy, and I appreciate that in you very much. Thank you. That's what I'm trying to do again. As you said, you know, on the phone, I'm just. You know, I, I did a lot for him when he was here, but maybe, you know, my best days of doing stuff for him are ahead of me. And I'm hoping mm. that's true, especially with the people that are around there right now. So thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. It was great having you on. Got to have you back on for more experiences, but this has been awesome. Thank you so much again, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Thank you, guys. And um, everyone else, tune in to the next episode. Thank you guys so much. Much love. Keep it fun.